0: Welcome to the Out of Darkness podcast, episode three, Bell Witch, part two. Hey, and welcome to the Out of Darkness podcast show. I'm your host, Brent. This is the show where we discuss all things supernatural, paranormal, and strange phenomena. But we have these conversations from analyzing them from the lens of scripture in a biblical worldview. So as I said, this is the second episode of the Bell Witch. Uh, in this episode, we're actually going to break down uh, the witch, the witch years, manifestations, and different paranormal phenomena that happened. So without further ado, let me just kind of jump into it. We left off last episode exploring the Bell family history in the land. There are so many different experiences that we could talk about, but we have to have a baseline of where to start. We have to start with mentioning the years leading up to the Witch Years. From the time that John Bell Sr. purchased the property to the time of the Witch Years was about a decade. And... The year that the family trouble starts, from the account of Williams, he is the second youngest son of the Bells. uh, We have to pose the question, was it only the four or five years of paranormal phenomenon? Or did this stuff happen right from the start? I'm here to say it happened right from the beginning. From the very beginning, the Bells and anyone that was on the property had different experiences. At first, it was small things like most typical hauntings. Maybe we'll take a look at typical hauntings if you guys want to hear a deep delve into that. But for now, we'll stick to the Bell Witch and the stories related to it. In fact, anyone that's owned the Bell family farm has had all kinds of different strange types of paranormal and high strangeness phenomenon. So with this being said, this is not just an isolated event to the Bell family. The current owners and caretakers of the the Bell Witch cave and park the Kirby family have documented their experience both in the museum and in the book entitled The Bell Witch, The Truth Exposed. But we, before we look at more modern stories, let's take a look at the Bell family, the witch, the witch family, and the witch years. From the start, the Bell started experiencing what I would like to call small phenomenon. Small phenomena would be scratching, knocking, tapping, those types of things. Family dealt with these types of phenomenon uh, really just from the building of their house and working up the, the land to farm. And as time went on, it escalated quickly. And I believe the escalation was due to this discovery of the Indian mound that's on their property. And the Indian mound is directly on top of the cave that's on the property, which we'll be going into that a little bit more a little bit later. There are reports that the Bell Trojan used to play, not only in the cave, but on the mound as well. Specifically, there are stories of Betsy and Joel Bell digging around and looking for artifacts. Of course, once John and Lucy discovered this, they tried to put a stop to it quickly. Before the witch manifested the way that it did, there were sightings of strange animals, and they were sighted by many But there's four sightings that stand out. The first that was mentioned was by Drury, John Sr., and their slave that was uh, their logger, Dean. They saw an abnormally large, beastly dog. They described it to be black as coal, red eyes. It was more beast than dog. Dean had the most interactions with this beast. Dean had experienced this in a few different ways. He had an encounter uh, one day, and he took his axe and hit it over the head and split its head in two. Now, there's more details with that, and I would highly encourage you to read the book related to the, to the events. But after he had split the head in two, he said that he had seen this beast dog with two heads or no head at all. And one of the children... And also, John Sr. had witnessed four of these creatures in the field almost as if they were stalking them. Commonly, these beasts were, would be known today as hellhounds or devil dogs, which I intend on covering this on a topic by itself. The next sighting that took place was by one of the sons of John Bell Sr. The sighting was an abnormally large bird. At first, he thought it was a turkey. But when he shot it, it didn't fall, and it began to flap its wings, and it took off soaring. We're going to make some, some connections with this and these manifestations, linking them to potentially other cases. So keep that in mind as time goes on, that there's more than just one case of seeing these abnormally large birds. But this isn't actually the most common that's associated with the haunting. The most common is, in fact, a rabbit. Yes, that's right, a rabbit. But this wasn't any old rabbit. There are some distinctions that are made about the rabbit. It was said that this rabbit would follow you, all who were on the path to uh, the, the bell house. And if it wasn't following you, it seemed to move every single time you moved. The rabbit was snow white with a spot under its right paw. It had red eyes and almost looked sickly. And those that found these rabbits and were able to kill them, they take the spotted paw, uh, cut off that paw, and put it in the right pocket for good luck and protection against evil. This is actually where the lucky rabbit's foot came from. The witch even told several guests at the bell house one evening that it was the rabbit that followed you on the trail to the bell house. These rabbit sightings are most associated with witches. This is why many thought that the, that haunting the bells was in fact a witch. Now, there's other, there's other things as well, but that's, that was actually deep-rooted in the folklore at the time uh, related to, you know, these dogs and these birds and, and things like that. So, again, though the, they were believers, though they were Baptists, Take that into consideration as the story unravels. The last sighting was from Betsy Bell. She was walking along and saw a girl sitting on a branch of a tree close to the Indian mound. When she got a little closer, the little girl vanished. This little girl was seen all around the Bell farm a few times by a few different people over the years. Some think that this is the spirit of an Indian girl that was dated from about 600 years ago at the time. The girl was buried inside the cave of the first, first room. So, so when you go into the cave, there's a long hallway. And when you go down that hallway, you come into the first room. Now, when you take a tour, they're going to talk about actually this little mound of stones actually that's, that's right there in the first room. And this is actually the, the burial site of this, of this girl. Grave robbers have since then stolen the remains, but you can still, like I said, see it inside the cave where she was laid to rest today. All these different types of apparitions were before the witch activity and the witch years even began. Now let's move on to the witch and all things related to it. Now, for time's sake, we're only going to cover major events related to the family dealing with the witch. As I said before, if you want a more detailed description of anything related to the topic, I highly recommend the book that's written by M.V. Ingram entitled An Authenticated History of the Famous Bell Witch. There's several books that are written, uh, actually later, by some of the other owners... But they all actually firsthand source that book. So if you are interested in reading a little bit more about this, I would highly recommend start with M.V. Ingram's book first, and then kind of go from there. Now, according to most of the accounts, the witch year started in sometime between 1816 and 1817. But the witch started fully making its presence known by all in early 1818. It started, as I said before, with small activities, such as scratching, gnawing, gnawing noises, uh, crashes, bangs, taps, those kinds of things. Then it began to escalate to forcefully ripping off the covers off of every person in the house in the middle of the night until morning. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was laying there and had my covers violently ripped off of me, I'd probably be pretty upset. Just saying. And then it started to manifest when people were visiting the home. The first people to challenge the spirit were James Johnston and James Gunn, both devoted Christians and preachers, and also very close friends to the Bells. Now, this is what they tell you not to do, okay, but these guys did, and I think what happens when they do this is quite interesting. So they started provoking the spirit. They kept asking the spirit what its intentions were, who it was, why it was there. And in my experience, this is always when you get what you ask for. The spirit began to start making noises like mumbling, but eventually, after they kept pursuing it and demanding answers, it started to speak in full sentences, as if... You and I were talking. This is what makes the bell story and the, and the, and the bell witch so com- compelling. Because without those conversations, we really don't have much of a story. I, 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 don't, I don't think historically we would look at back at these events and go, what was so great about that? But, but we have a story of a spirit literally talking to you. And as this story unravels, I I, want to point out something very, very important here. So from that point on, the spirit made up stories as to who it was, what its intentions were. Now, what's interesting is that it actually answered probably four or five different times in four or five different ways as to who it was, uh, everything from a, a spirit that they left in north carolina to uh, the angry spirit of a native american to uh, the list goes on and on and on uh, and so it's it's quite interesting that you know it does answer them and, and in a sly way but what's so interesting is that when the spirit started to do this and they did nightly demonstrations of what seemed to be all-knowing and secret knowledge. Well, I have a question, though. Can spirits actually do this? And do we have biblical demonstrations of this? Well, I think one of the best biblical examples is actually when Saul actually meets the medium at at Endor. Now, I'm going to give you a bit of a thumbnail sketch of this. So... This is 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 7 to 25. In these verses, we see that Saul is seeking out a medium to have answers for a problem he's facing. But three things to point out here. First, God tells us in his word that all forms of witchcraft are an abomination to him. Meaning before our Savior God and King Jesus came to save us from our sins... By being the ultimate sacrifice, there was no redemption for those who practiced and sought out witchcraft. I repeat, before Jesus came and was the ultimate sacrifice, there was no redemption for those who practiced and sought out witchcraft. Secondly, God, Yahweh, left Saul... And he was left to himself in his sin. It was Saul's sin that led him to the medium at Endor. That is the most important message in understanding any topic related to any of this that we talk about on the Out of Darkness show. Understand that most of the things related to the occults is in fact sin that we're dealing with. Now, yes, we are talking about it. Yes, we're trying to call it out. Yes, we're trying to make a difference. But ultimately, it is sin. Now, now to get back to to the the third aspect. Lastly, it wasn't just any old spirit. That's, That's also important to understand. The spirit came and spoke to Saul, and the witch was Samuel. Samuel was the dead prophet that anointed Saul king. So not only did Samuel say that he couldn't help Saul, but he had knowledge about Saul's future and Saul's life. So with that little thumbnail sketch, so can spirits have secret knowledge that we don't understand? Even though that this example isn't exactly like the bell witch, it shows us that spirits are from the heavenly realm. And so they're going to have knowledge that we don't have. They're going to have understanding that we don't have. So when you're dealing with a spirit, okay, whether it calls itself a witch, whether it calls itself whatever, okay, understand that you're dealing with something. And I'm going to try to be clear about this. Understand that you're dealing with something that is not in your best interest and it is not glorifying to God, okay? Now, I plan on going into this more depth uh, in future episodes, but I just wanted to point that out. So, here's another interesting question. Did the Bell Witch act alone or whether was there other spirits involved? I think that's an interesting question. I think a lot of people are under the impression that the Bells and others that have experienced this high strangeness and and paranormal on the Bell Witch grounds think that we're only dealing with one spirit. I'm convinced, as well as others, that we're not just dealing with one singular spirit. Now, I'll I'll explain that a little bit here in a here in a second. The Bells specifically experienced multiple different entities. Some showing up as a devilish family. That's why we have the witch family. That's why that's talked about. All with different personalities. But the leader they called. And here's a big one. Here's, Here's a shocker. The Black Dog. Hmm. Sounds interesting, doesn't it? And again... The whole idea of, of hellhounds and that whole thing. I plan on doing an episode by itself just to be able to dive more deeply into that. This would explain the sightings of the four devil dogs on the edge of the field. Each spirit representing itself through a sighting. Williams in his journal, in his journal Our Family Troubles, talks about this idea briefly of multiple spirits. But then if this is the case, how do you explain the witch? Scripture, in both Old and New Testament, talks about familiar spirits. Now, this is what I believe the bells were experiencing was a familiar spirit. Now, does this mean that the bells sought out the spirit? Uh, do, does this mean that they, you know, were conjuring and stuff like that? No, I think that's a misconception of what a familiar spirit is. Again, that's probably going to be another episode that I'll cover, uh, is what is a familiar spirit? Related to the occults, and and what does that look like? How do we understand it? Uh, The root meaning, though, is that the spirit made itself familiar to the environment of those interacting with it. And I believe that the activities of the Bellwitch property have to do primarily with the burial mound and the cave itself. We can trace back throughout our human history using caves and religious practices all over the world. Many ex- experts all over the world still fully don't understand the ancient world on this topic. It doesn't matter what, it really, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether or not, in our worldview, we believe in these practices. Here's the fact. The fact is, is that the people saw the land on the bell farm and the cave to be wholly within their belief system. Okay, that's important to understand. This is why we have to understand that it's sacred to those ancient people. Even though it wasn't deemed holy in the sense that it's Yahweh's, we have to acknowledge that someone found it to be sacred. The ancient ancestors of this land are protecting the land and the cave. And within their belief system, this activity that is experienced is a way that they do that. I know that may sound surprising to some, and that may be shocking. But you have to understand that what you're dealing with is, is in an aspect of it, this is a a ground that they've seen sacred. And so we have to understand that. And we have to try to not disturb the land or the cave or anything on this ancient site. And here's the reason, ultimately. Ultimately. And I had to explain this to my wife one day. The ancient people, okay, that deem this place holy within their belief system, they see it as a desecration to what they believe. So it's very possible that what everyone has experienced has been related to disturbing the ancient site, whether it was intentional or not it could have these ancient spirits chasing them down until things are put right in a certain sense. Believe that how you want and take that how you want, which this kind of brings me to my next point here. And and I've kind of already have, have said it, but if the area has potential to be sacred, do your best to not disturb anything. And again, there's consequences for this that you may not expect you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like this. I'll use, I'll use this example. So it'd be like me going into your house and literally ripping everything off the walls and rearranging everything. And you're not there, right. But you come home to your house in complete and total utter just disaster. And I look at you cause I'm still there and I go, don't you love it? in a certain sense that's that's what's happening right it, it may not be intentional but this is how these people you know these these spirits in a certain sense that are attached to the land and the people that that made this this land sacred that's how they see it so again it's it's just something to point out it's take that again how you how you want to take it the last topic that we're going to cover is the more modern stories of what happened on the bellwitch grounds the family that currently owns it and are the caretakers of this historic site is the kirby family the kirby's have owned the property for about the last 30 years they have not been shorted on their share for a normal high strangeness uh it's it's pretty profound actually uh there there's a again there's a book that was written about their experiences, uh, this book is called The Bell Witch, The Truth Exposed. And they kind of do a tell-all of all the experiences that they experience and, and some stories that some people may not be familiar with, a, a few like, uh, because they they had documentation also of the previous owners before they owned it. Uh, and they, the previous owners before the Kirbys, I believe they they started their ownership of the of the bell, the bell cave, and the and the grounds in about nineteen ten. So you have well over a hundred years of history with the previous family that before the Kirby's owned it, and even though this book was put together uh, only after ten years of them owning the property, it's pretty interesting. Uh, so this was. A very detailed description, and the type of activity that the Kirby's ex- experienced. Uh, personally, I think they did an amazing job documenting the history uh, of the land and the Bell family. Uh, but let's let's take a little bit more of a of a of a deep dive into that. So the Kirby's have experienced most of the same things that the Bell's did. Now, you may be thinking, well, how is that possible? Well, the only thing that they haven't really seen is the more violent encounters. Uh, the Kirbys haven't, ex- but they've experienced disembodied voices, crashes, bangs. Uh, there's a chain rattling noise that they hear. Uh, but most of the encounters that they've experienced in, the, in, their, in their ownership of the, of the land and the cave has been in and around the cave. They've even had paranormal investigators come... In, and document with modern technologies and on their different experiences. And so, with all of this being said, I think it's safe to say that this haunting is not an isolated event to just the Bell family, uh, which took place over two centuries ago. If we look at the evidence, it doesn't suggest anything isolated. What it does suggest is that whatever type of spirit this is, is ancient, and ultimately is trying to protect the land at all cost. Again, we'll go into this topic farther in the next episode. I, I hope that uh, the, the next episode will be very interesting. Uh, I'm actually bringing on my wife, uh, Lydia, and uh, because one of her favorite things to do is analysis. And so uh, we're going to analyze, uh, analyze, I guess is the better way to say it, uh, the, the Bell Witch, and she's going to say it from her perspective, and I'll say it from my perspective, and uh, Lord willing, I hope you guys really profit from that, and, and I hope that this kind of clears up some of the understanding of the activity that kind of goes around. And again, this is just a thumbnail sketch. This isn't, this isn't everything that's taken place. I mean, this episode would be hours long if I said absolutely everything. I, I mean, you have... You have stories of uh, uh, Andrew Jackson. You have stories of uh, uh, of uh, it's just it's just crazy. (laughs) Some of the stories, I mean, some of them are over the top, which could be expected. But I do encourage you to think about the things talked about uh, as we analyze it and you analyze it specifically from your own view. You decide what you believe and who you believe in. If you have any suggestions of any of the topics that you'd like us to discuss or inquiries about the Out of Darkness podcast show, please reach out to us Facebook or Instagram, or you can email us at indarknessintolight at gmail.com. Well, that's all for now. Thank you for listening and stay in tune for more content. God bless. (laughs)